Hello everyone, welcome to The Empowering Neurologist. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. What if there was a cure for Alzheimer's disease and nobody was talking about it? Well, today we're going to talk to Mary Newport. Uh, Mary Newport is a medical doctor. She's board certified in pediatrics and neonatology, the study of newborns. She practiced neonatology here in Florida for 30 years and was the founding medical director of two newborn intensive care units in the Tampa Bay area. Now she's providing care to patients at the opposite end of the spectrum. She visits patients who are receiving what's called end-of-life care. She's also a caregiver for her husband of 43 years. Steve, who suffers from early onset Alzheimer's disease, uh, is the subject of her work. She's the author of this book, Alzheimer's Disease, What If There Was a Cure? And also the story of ketones and what ketones are we're going to explore today. She has been an invited speaker on this subject for symposia really around the world, in the United States, of course, Canada, France, Greece, Germany, and even Japan. And she's also been a speaker at the MCT Symposium, the Median, Medium Chain Triglyceride Symposium, that again, focuses on powering the brain and the body with, with fat as opposed to carbohydrates. Uh, she is uh, a member of the Institute for Human Machine Cognition, and she has completed her fellowship in anti-aging medicine as well as regenerative medicine uh, and uh, has uh, been a, an active member in the Weston Price Foundation as well as multiple other organizations. She's given numerous lectures for university students and for the public. She maintains a website and a blog so we'll give out that information because it's really uh, full of great information understanding uh, human physiology really focused on this important role of ketones as a fuel for the brain. Um, she, her website, uh, we will po post, but it's coconutketones.com. And I just uh, spoke with uh, Dr. Newport at a recent symposium, the American College of Nutrition. So today we're going to explore this book with a very compelling title, again, Alzheimer's disease, what if there was a cure? So here we go. So again, it's really my pleasure today to get to talk with Dr. Mary Newport. Welcome to our program, Mary. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And again, we're going to be looking at this incredible book because uh, right off the bat, uh, you challenged the mainstream. I mean, the mainstream would like us to believe that we should sort of sit back and hope for that magic pill, but you uh, are very challenging of that notion. Maybe we could start and uh, take a step back and talk about how things changed with your husband and what it was like to try to explore the various options. Right, right. Yeah, my husband, um, he was an accountant that worked at home for my practice for many years. Um, he could do the most detailed forms. He was very active physically. Uh, but then when he was about 51 years old in 2001, he started having problems um, with um, making payroll mistakes, missing tax deadlines, and then he uh, would forget if he had been to the bank and the post office. So that was very serious. I knew that that wasn't normal, and he was also depressed at that time, and initially his doctors attributed that to depression. However, things continued to get worse. He started having problems finding his way around. He would spend hours in the garage looking for something that, and then he couldn't remember what it was, but he'd still be looking for it. Very odd behaviors. And around 2004, when he was 54 years old, he was officially diagnosed with dementia. And then about six months later, his physician felt based on various tests and the progression of the disease that 
he most likely had Alzheimer's disease. At age 54, he's diagnosed with Alzheimer's 54. disease. 54, yeah, this and was a what shock. What were you told back then in 2004? What were you told you needed to do? What was the therapy? What was the course of action recommended? Yeah, at that point, um, the only medication that had been approved for use in Alzheimer's was Aricept. And so um, when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he was placed on Aricept. I was told that it might slow the progress of the disease a little bit by perhaps six months, um, but that ultimately it you know, would not benefit him. We could not really expect improvement. Though so, you, were given, you were given a prescription for the so-called Alzheimer's pill, but right. even then recognizing that it basically didn't work. Right. And we were told that this was a lifelong commitment, that if once he started this medication, he needed to stay on it for life. Uh, if we took him off, we could expect that he would deteriorate more quickly. So, um, you know, that was one reason his physician hesitated initially to even put him on the drug because of the lifelong commitment um, that we expected. Um, but, you know, we were not expecting to really see improvement, and we didn't. We didn't. I didn't really notice anything, any change in him, um, but we did keep him on it because of the concerns <laughs> Well, and that perhaps it would slow down the course of the disease. There was and no way to know really if it was happening or not. But obviously that wasn't good enough for you, was it? No, <laughs> it wasn't. Um, it didn't really give us hope. Uh, we wanted, you know, we would like to see him improve or at least stabilize. And there were so many times we thought if we could just freeze where we're at right now, we can live with this. Uh, but that's not the way the disease works. It just continues to um, cause a person to deteriorate. Uh, the memory gets worse and behaviors, odd behaviors start appearing. So um, this really didn't give us any hope with um, uh, using Aricept. There's a great quote that uh, Robert Kennedy paraphrased, I think from George Bernard Shaw, mm -hmm. uh, and it goes, um, some people see things as they are and ask why, others see things as they could be and ask why not. So, so that's who you are, I guess, in, in this mm -hmm. whole story. And then you began to develop uh, an idea uh, in, in recognizing uh, the important role of brain energetics. How did that evolve for you? Yeah, so um, the, uh, so many changes happened from 2004 when he was diagnosed uh, now to 2008. Uh, at that point, he uh, really by 2006, he could no longer do any accounting, use a calculator, turn on a computer, even do simple math. And this was a man who was on a computer all day long, you know, doing accounting. And um, and when he wasn't working on his computer, he was playing on his computer. So to see this happen in just such a few years was devastating to us. And uh, by 2008, he also had some physical symptoms as well. He really couldn't finish sentences and his jaw would tremor when he tried to talk. Um, his hand would tremor when he was eating and he had difficulty getting certain types of food up to his mouth. Uh, in the morning, he would come out very sluggish. Um, he couldn't find a spoon or get water out of the refrigerator, um, without numerous, uh, reminders being talked through it. So he was, uh, very much on a downward spiral and, um, up to that point, I had always been looking out for clinical trials. Um, we thought he would be uh, possibly maybe one of the first beneficiaries of the drug that would come along um, to save people with Alzheimer's. And but, that was eight years ago. And just to right. be clear, that still hasn't happened. So good right. thing you still did what you happened. ended up doing. 
Yeah. So um, along came two new clinical trials, and he tried for one of them. This was May, early May of um, 2012, uh, 20, 2008, I'm sorry. But um, he needed to qualify for the study, and one of the tests was the mini mental status exam, which is a 30-point test. And if you're normal, you will get 30 points, maybe 29 um, however, he scored only 12 on the test and he needed at least 16 points to qualify because they want to study people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's. Well, just for our viewers, I just want to say that his score on that test is an indication of severe involvement, severe brain dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So, uh, he's here, he is not even so bad off that he can't even qualify for this trial. Right. And that was, um, a shock. We, I really did not expect his his uh, mini mental status to be so low at that point. So we were told to come back in a couple weeks and try again. And in the meantime, another medication, um, a clinical trial was starting for that. And I happened to have two days off in a row and we scheduled screenings for him two days in a row. So the night before the first screening, I started thinking, what if it gets accepted into both trials? You can't be in two tr clinical trials. So I was online looking for the risks and the benefits of the two drugs and I just happened purely by chance upon a press release for a medical food that was working towards recognition by the FDA. It was not available yet, but it claimed that in their studies of people, their clinical trials, that it had improved the memory of nearly half the people who had taken it, um, improved memory and cognition. And that's not something you ever hear about any of the Alzheimer's drugs. So again, just uh, for our viewers, it, this is not a prescription <laughs> drug, but it is an FDA approved medical food that Dr. Newport uh, discovered that was subsequently uh, approved and is available. And how does that medical food actually work? What's the, the mechanism? Okay. So, um, you know, I came across this and it didn't say what it was or what it did. So I was able to find their patent application. And the interesting thing was it um, discussed an entire area or aspect of Alzheimer's disease that I was not aware of before. We always hear of plaques and tangles with Alzheimer's, but this was uh, talked about uh, diabetes of the brain, a problem in which there is insulin resistance and insulin deficiency in the brain that basically prevents um, cells from being able to take up glucose in certain areas of the brain, um, that this is something that occurs possibly decades before uh, the person begins having symptoms, uh, that it becomes progressive and extends eventually throughout the brain um, with each worsening stage of the disease. Um, it was a term um, that was coined by Dr. Suzanne Delamonte and her group at Brown University. They basically looked at brains of people who had died with severe Alzheimer's that did not have type 1 or type 2 diabetes and found this insulin deficiency and insulin resistance. And so they coined the term type 3 diabetes to indicate Alzheimer's disease. You know, you said something I think I don't want to uh, have our viewers miss, and that is that the actual uh, process begins decades before mm -hmm. clinical manifestation. Mm -hmm. And that the initial event seems to be a metabolic event, seems to be a, an event of energy uh, production from the brain cells, which is exactly what was targeted or what is targeted by this, this medical food mm -hmm. uh, that was approved for treatment of people already who have the disease diagnosed. But I think the point is for those individuals with family histories or who may already be type 2 diabetic, 
or who think they're going to be living to 85 years, uh, that this is information they need to understand as we develop what yeah. you're about to tell us. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you can look at in someone with Alzheimer's is an FDG PET scan to look at glucose uptake in the brain. And studies have been done in people in their 20s who are at risk for Alzheimer's already showing that there is a problem with glucose uptake in the brain at that stage well before they would be expected to have symptoms. Well, we've all been told that the brain has to have glucose because that's right. its primary fuel. But, right. Um, I mean, I think what you've explained to us mm -hmm. is that isn't necessarily true. And in fact, here yeah. you're seeing that this disease may be, in fact, a manifestation of defective uh, neurons' ability to utilize glucose. Right, right. And there are several other reasons. Um, there is an enzyme deficiency. It's called um, pyruvate dehydrogenase um, that... Um, basically metabolizes glucose to pyruvate. Um, there's a problem with that. There's a problem with what are called GLUT1 and GLUT3 transporters, getting glucose into the brain and into neurons. It's almost like there's a conspiracy of getting glucose into certain areas of the brain. And, you know, to some degree, when that happens, when we have uh, ultimately elevated glucose in the body, uh, that glycates proteins. And the carrier mm -hmm. proteins then for even delivering fat into the brain as a fuel source when they become glycated, that compromises even that pathway for utilization of fatty acids. Right, right. So um, one of the interesting things that is not well known is that the brain can use an alternative source of fuel called ketones. Um, and the, this happens you know, mainly in starvation or fasting. Um, and that's, it's basically part of our evolution and probably one of the reasons people have been able to evolve and survive, um, evolution is that our brains and other organs of our body can easily switch over from using glucose to ketones during starvation. Um, this was discovered around 1967, a very interesting study in which they fasted an obese lady, uh, for 40 days. And they found that, um, oh, after that period of time that, ketones supplied about two-thirds of the fuel to her brain, and that was how her brain survived without damage for such a prolonged period of starvation. So uh, it's an interesting concept that has been known for quite a while. Uh, what happens during starvation is that you start breaking down some muscle and certain amino acids can be converted to glucose, but if you only had muscle to use you would die probably within seven to 10 days um, using up all of your muscle because the, the brain is very active. It requires a great uh, amount of fuel, probably about 20 to 25% of the fuel that our body consumes. Um, however, we have fat. <laughs> and when we have periods of excessive calories, we store fat. And um, during starvation, when the glucose stores are used up in our body, which happens around 36 to 48 hours, we begin breaking down fat and some of the fatty acids can be used by skeletal muscle and heart muscle and other organs, but they do not cross the blood brain barrier. However, uh, the liver can process some of these fatty acids to make ketones, which do cross the blood brain barrier. They're small molecules relatively, and uh, they're easily taken up by the brain. Um, it's been shown by Dr. Stephen Cunane in Canada that the higher the plasma level of ketones, the more energy is provided to the brain. So uh, these are taken up by neurons. And the neat thing about it is they do not require insulin to get into the neurons. 
and we're having a problem in Alzheimer's of insulin deficiency and insulin resistance. So uh, ketones use a different type of transporter called monocarboxylate transporters. And it basically uh, bypasses this problem of insulin resistance and enters the same metabolic pathway that glucose enters, but at a different level um, to end up making ATP, which is the energy molecule that fuels um, all of the processes of the cells, really. So it's it's kind of a neat trick that ketones so can what, be used as an alternative. So what you're saying then is, uh, number one, you're refuting this notion that the brain has to have glucose, therefore we've got to eat carbohydrates all the time, which right. I think you know gets, dates back to high school biology. The, the, the reality of the situation is the brain can metabolize fat and does so, in fact, very well and does so with great efficiency, able to make these ATP molecules that you're talking about uh, far more efficiently burning fat than uh, it would do uh, when burning glucose and with less production of damaging free radicals. So it kind of appends this notion that we've all been told about the brain needing sugar, therefore I'm going to eat lots of carbohydrates. Right. So you aggressively treated your husband on a very a ketogenic type of diet, restricted his carbs, gave him things like coconut oil, and what happened uh, to him? Yeah, so um, basically this medical food I learned was MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride oil. Um, it rang a bell with me because I'm a neonatologist. We used to add it to the feedings of our premature newborns because they tolerated it well and it would help them grow faster. Uh, and then they started adding it to infant formulas. It's in virtually every infant formula. Um, one of the things I learned was that um, MCT oil is extracted from coconut oil. And I learned that coconut oil is about 60% medium chain fats. Um, so what happened was uh, Steve was trying out for these, you know, these two clinical trials. And on the day before he started coconut oil, and this is the morning after I learned about this on the internet, um, he went for the screening. I didn't have time to go out and get coconut oil or MCT oil. And he scored again, a low score, only 14 out of 30 points on the MMSE. And he did not qualify for the study. And the doctor had him draw a clock. Um, it's in the book that you mentioned there. It was just a few little random circles and four numbers. Um, it didn't look anything like a clock, very disorganized. And she told us that he was on the verge of severe Alzheimer's. So this was very devastating news. And I thought, what do we have to lose? I'm going to go buy some coconut oil. Um, coconut kind of, oil? Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? You yeah. can write a book about it. Matter of fact, you know, for all of you, uh, I oh. want you to see this book because uh, uh, we, this is your, um, you know, your foray into the world of coconut oil and coupling oh. that with low carbohydrate. Low carbohydrate for the brain depriving yeah. the brain of basically mm -hmm. sugar and forcing mm -hmm. the brain to start to burn these fats. Right, right. And what wow. happened to him when you when you put him on that type of diet? Yeah, so just purely coincidentally, the next day he was um, screening again for a, a different clinical trial, really at a different location, um, but the same location that he had been at two weeks earlier when he scored a 12 on the test. So... Um, I had researched um, what were medium chain triglycerides. I had to remind myself from, you know, first year biochemistry in medical school, and I was able to find the composition of coconut oil at a, on a USDA website and learned that it was almost 60% medium chain. So I figured out how much coconut oil to give him that I believe was the equivalent of the medical food dose that they were going to use. And 
So um, the morning of the second clinical trial screening, uh, I gave Steve uh, basically 35 mLs, which is a little over two tablespoons of coconut oil. And his testing was about three hours later. Um, on the way down when we were driving, he couldn't, still couldn't remember the day of the week or what the season was. He couldn't even remember or pull out the word spring. And But then when he got there for the trial, they took him away. They did the mini metastatus. They came back. He didn't think he had done very well. But the nurse comes in and she starts taking his blood pressure, drawing blood. And um, I said, well, what's happening? She says, well, didn't he tell you he scored 18? So he qualified for the, the trial. So... At that center, his mini-mental status went up from 12 to 18, and this was just a few hours after his very first dose of coconut oil. And I thought at the time, is it really the coconut oil, or did we just get very lucky? Um, but in the, the clinical trials of the MCT oil um, for the medical food, um, their first tr- uh, pilot study was of 20 people who just came two times. One time they got placebo, the other time they got MCT oil, and they did cognitive testing uh, on each occasion. And what they found was nearly half of the people with just one dose of MCT oil had improvement 90 minutes later in their cognitive testing. Um, so it, it was possible that it was the coconut oil. Uh, well, but at I, any I rate, think, I know, thought we're going to keep this going. Beyond uh, any doubt that you are mm-hmm. correct. But let mm-hmm. me just, <clears throat> again, for our viewers, when, when Dr. Newport is talking about this MCT oil that you may not have heard about, uh, 60% of the fat in uh, coconut oil is MCT. So mm-hmm. when she says MCT oil, you should think coconut oil. There are other, mm-hmm. there are MCT oil products on the market, but right. you can just get coconut oil to make this happen. Yeah, and you indeed, can. This is the platform mm-hmm. for the FDA-approved medical food, which goes by the name of Axona, mm-hmm. A-X-O-N-A. You can read about that online. But um, So you really began to become very interested. Mm-hmm. And let me just say one other thing I think is really interesting. You uh, were a neonatologist. You were dealing with the youngest of the young, the right. newborns. Right. And now at this point in your career, you have taken it upon your, yourself mm-hmm. to uh, explore what you can do uh, to help your husband with an, an old person's right. uh, situation. With basically. an old person's disease. So it wasn't right. really a, a place of comfort mm-hmm. for you. You really had mm-hmm. to do the homework. Right, right. Um, uh, none of the, uh, the adult uh, medications are familiar to me at all. So... Uh, much less adult diseases and neurodegenerative type diseases. I want to be taking care of neonates. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I was out of my comfort zone, and I was always on the internet, constantly reading and reading everything that I could. And um, the only thing I had ever heard about that um, prior to stumbling across this uh, was that there was a problem with insulin receptors in neurons that they weren't that they were somehow not on the surface of the cell membrane in the neurons in Alzheimer's. Um, they could see them like clumped with some kind of amorphous substance below the surface of the cell membranes. And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. And that was the only other time I had well, heard anything. Well, as I'm sure you're well aware, but our, our viewers may not be so uh, aware of, and that is that there are various trials that are still happening and uh, actually products now being formulated to bypass that insulin receptor issue by administering uh, nasally, intranasally insulin and actually demonstrating a small degree of success. But mm-hmm. Understand, you know, that's one small part of the story. Right. And, and the, the big picture here is that mm-hmm. brain cells are metabolically compromised. Mm-hmm. And that's what your approach seems to be overriding. Right, right. Just trying to bypass the problem, um, taking advantage of the brain's metabolic flexibility, I guess you could say, that uh, the brain can easily switch over to using ketones. 
So uh, over the years, you you studied this. You mm -hmm. uh, he continued to improve. You began lecturing globally on the this whole notion, uh, and you know there's really been a, a huge uh, level of support for the work that you've done. Uh, and now you know the, the idea of uh, being on a ketogenic diet and being in low grade ketosis has really transcended. Uh, just uh, treating Alzheimer's, but mm -hmm. I mean, even in your coconut oil book, you're talking about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. We know that, uh, you know, the idea of using ketones to treat epilepsy has mm -hmm. been present since uh, 1928. Right. Uh, but even beyond that, we are now seeing a ketogenic diet, a, a strict ketogenic diet, uh, demonstrating efficacy in treating some of the most aggressive brain tumors like mm -hmm. glioblastoma. Textbooks are now incorporated in this information. So it's really been a bit of a revelation for us mm -hmm. to get back to how brain cells are powered. Yes. Um, yeah, the cancer uh, part is very interesting. Um, cancer loves sugar, and they their mitochondria are altered such that they cannot use ketones um, efficiently, but our other cells can. So we can take advantage, again, in cancer uh, of greatly reducing the sugar um, in the bloodstream that's available to the tumor by going on a very strict ketogenic diet, uh, which is a very high fat diet. It's 80 to 90% of the calories is fat and very minuscule amounts of carbohydrate and just enough protein to try to maintain lean body mass, um, which will essentially starve or deprive the tumor of glucose, which could allow it to shrink. If there is a tiny metastasis, potentially it could kill the metastasis. Uh, there have been some animal studies showing um, that this seems to occur, you know, with a strict ketogenic diet in, um, in animals and um, a number of human volunteers that I'm aware of that have had uh, improvement and um, decrease in apparent lighting up on PET scans, you know, with their metastases. Um, so it's very interesting work. There are several clinical trials just getting underway uh, looking at people um, with the ketogenic diet as either uh, a primary but um, treatment or but as an adjunct to other treatments, perhaps shrinking the tumor so it's more easily taken care of surgically mm -hmm. or shrinking it and mm -hmm. then um, with radiation it might uh, have better success, you know, better outcome. So uh, over the ensuing years as mm -hmm. uh, you worked with uh, creating this strongly ketogenic diet for your husband, mm -hmm. how much more did he improve? He improved uh, very substantially during the first year. Um, basically, I felt like, um, why limit to just one dose a day, like of a medical food? Um, when you look at levels of ketones after you take a product like Axona or a dose of MCT oil, uh, and even coconut oil, you know, the levels go up uh, for an hour or two or three, and then the ketone levels are gone after several hours. Well, what do you do the rest of the 24 hours? So uh, basically, we started uh, cooking with it right away, um, and then eventually I added measured doses at dinner and then at lunch and then before bedtime, thinking that the more ketone you could provide to the brain, um, the more benefit you could potentially get. So basically, we saw Steve's mini mental status exam rise even further from 18 to 20 um, a couple months later, and then um, he was actually accepted into one of the clinical trials. And we later learned he was on the placebo for about 12 to 14 months. Um, <laughs> my objection to these double blind yeah. trials. But, you know, that yeah. said, uh, I, I would indicate that um, 
while you can certainly force ketone levels with uh, a dose of MCT oil or coconut oil, that said, if you're really strict with carbohydrate restriction, mm -hmm. uh, your body's going to really open the channel for ketone production from utilizing your own body fat as well. So you can remain in a low grade of ketosis throughout the day uh, and not really require continued dosages of whichever uh, source of, of MCT right. you're looking at. But uh, right. I think it, to it, get jump started, you know, coconut mm -hmm. oil is, is a terrific mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, basically what we saw with Steve is before he started the coconut oil, he seemed to be craving sugar and he was just eating. For him, it was tremendous amounts of fruit. We were already... Um, had transitioned to a whole food diet, you know, for both of us trying to get away from packaged foods and chemicals and all of that. Um, but we still had a fair amount of whole grain um, in our diets and but beyond and that, a fruit. He was craving it and he was abs he was seeking it out. Um, and what that, you know, what I think that represents is his brain needing mm -hmm. a fuel source. Yeah. That you decided, uh, you know, flex fuel. You were going to give a, uh, come into the metabolic pathway in a different way, and uh, you did that with great success. And yeah. I really want to commend you because um, it, it's really difficult for a lot of people to step out and challenge the standard dogma mm -hmm. and, and the status quo. And, and you did, and you realized great success. But beyond that, um, I think you, you know, took it upon yourself uh, to make the public aware of your observation. And I know, you know, likely you've taken criticism for that, uh, as we all have. Yeah. And God bless you for doing it because... Thank you. Uh, you, you see now that the blanks have been filled in by other researchers, that Richard Beach, Mark Matz, and there are plenty of people out there doing the work and demonstrating that this is an extremely efficient and effective way of powering the brain. And, you know, even uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen at UCLA uh, has uh, his patients on a very low-carbohydrate, higher-fat diet and uses coconut oil uh, in an attempt to really to emulate what, what you were able to uh, discover. So... Uh, kudos to you. Well, I enjoyed Thank meeting you. with you a couple yeah, weeks ago yeah. at the American College of Nutrition when I invited you to, to participate. And uh, in the uh, in closing, let me just tell our viewers, I'll, I'll give you more information about Dr. Newport in just a moment. But Mary, let me thank you for being with us today. This information is so very valuable. Thanks again. Thank you so much for helping me to spread the message. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Well, that was really an amazing interview. I mean, uh, you know, we focus on the idea that we're waiting for a magic pill to cure our illnesses like Alzheimer's. And here, Dr. Newport has really opened up our eyes to an incredible new view of Alzheimer's by focusing on the brain's energetics. So again, here is her book, Alzheimer's Disease. Uh, what if there was a cure? And I would be uh, really remiss if I didn't tell you that this is an incredibly important book uh, to add to your collection uh, for yourself uh, in terms of your day-to-day -day nutrition and certainly as you consider the nutrition of, of your parents. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Thanks for joining us today.